0: Welcome to and Classic. <laughs> All right, friends and fiends of the pod. This is your host, Nate Wyckoff, writer and stand-up comedian. I wanted to uh, bring this special episode to you today that I'm super excited about. We have indie meister general here, Donald Farmer. I guarantee if you listen to this pod, you have uh, seen at least one and probably more Farmer movies. He's, he's a legend. Joe Bob Briggs called him the one-man film industry of Tennessee. How are you doing, Don? Oh pretty good. Right. Do you prefer Don or Donald? I, I don't really care. All right. Sounds good. That's that's my favorite kind of thing because I never know what I'm gonna say until I open my mouth.
1: <laughs> oh Uh-oh. yeah, you can you can call me anything. <laughs>
0: that's 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 kind of that's the attitude that probably has helped you, you know, since since your start. And you started in the seventies, right?
1: Uh that's right. Yeah, I did my first movie in seventy-three.
0: Seventy-three, and was that so I noticed when you look back through your your fantastically large catalog um, that was despondent yearning right it's the first uh-huh, one. yeah those are super eight silent movies that's that's fantastic and I, I saw too the Subrosa Studios did a, a couple of short print runs um, in the the Donald Farmer collection one and two uh, where they've they've put some of those together I mean they're shorts but they're actually not that short right most of them I think are probably like 30 minutes
1: Yeah, the span yearning is about 30 minutes. The longest we did is the summoned, which was 40 minutes, and then we did several that were 15 minutes. And uh, uh, all of those Super 8 movies I did on uh, in the 70s are released by Sub Rosa in the, the Donald Farmer Collection, Volume One and Two, except for the second one I made, where we couldn't find the both reels. We could only find one reel, so that was the only one they couldn't put out. It was called Premonitions, about a a girl with psychic power that sees the future but um, unfortunately they, we couldn't find all of that one but they, we found all the others which had been sitting in my closet for decades so
0: <laughs> that's that's the kind of thing I, I, I remember a bunch of uh, a bunch of my friends and I making you know short films uh, in in high school and finding those VHS tapes and just being so excited because it's like it's like revisiting the past you know
1: yeah, and, uh, and also uh, these Super 8 movies, even though I shot them in the 70s, the color really holds up and the color hadn't faded at all. Whereas uh, with a lot of the 16 millimeter color prints I have, the color will just turn red on you and completely oh. drain away. With these Super 8 movies, color still look pretty good.
0: That's, that's fantastic. And is, am I remembering correctly that you actually shot again on uh, Super 8 for, for High 8 or was that just the look?
1: That was just the look they were going to, but they just wanted mainly it to be sort of a dogma style video with mm-hmm. no frill, not a lot of fancy lighting, um, and uh, just shot on, they just basically wanted shot on a really cheap video equipment. They didn't want us to shoot on anything fancy, so I just shot on an extremely cheap camera to make them happy.
0: It's funny you say they didn't want any lighting effects, because I kind of re- remember some, some color in yours. I think it stood yeah. out among those.
1: Well, yeah, we did use uh, blue-colored gels and green-colored gels because I was shooting in a two-car garage for some sequences that just had white walls, and there's nothing more aesthetically boring than putting actors against white walls. So what I did was I I um, put some green gels on the lights and splashed the walls with green so it at least put a little color in it, you know, because I really hate shooting actors against white walls. That's one of my pet peeves.
0: I tell you, you know, especially I, I review a lot of films, especially the the quote unquote bad films, which are often my favorite for horrornews.net. You know, there's nothing that kills the moment more than um, a dull white wall and someone standing in front of, there's no way to get the character lit well, everything just sort of fades. And it just, it feels like watching a home movie uh, of, of yeah. someone that you're really not interested in.
1: The only thing worse is putting the actor too close to the white wall, and then Hitting them with direct light so that they have a giant shadow on the white wall everywhere they go. <laughs> That's
0: even. <laughs> I mean, you cut your teeth pretty early, and then I know you were doing journalism for these in the beginning, right? I, you were uh, you were actually in Dawn of the Dead, right?
1: Uh, in Day of the Dead, yeah, yeah I, the I was a, I was a journalist uh, in the 80s. I was uh, at the same time I was a reporter for two newspapers uh, i was a reporter for the largest newspaper in tennessee the national tennessean and then also a reporter for a daily paper in the town i lived in and i would sometimes write an article and rewrite it and give one version to one paper and one version to the other paper the national paper wanted a story that emphasized the state implications whereas the local paper wanted our stories that had the local angle and uh, But uh, while I was writing for these two newspapers, I also started doing magazine work, and and it was the magazine work that had me end up on the set of Day of the Dead, because I uh, was a feature writer for several magazines, probably the most famous ones, Fangoria, but I also did this magazine called Fantastic Films, which ended up becoming, retitling itself and becoming Film Facts many years later, and then I also was an American correspondent for this French magazine called uh, Le Grand Fantastique, uh, which just means fantastic screen. So when I was on Day of the Dead, they were representing two magazines. I was representing um, the old film facts when it was under the title Fantastic Films, and then I was also representing the French magazine. I gave them both exactly the same article, and then the French magazine inflated it into French for their magazine and then they each magazine had different uh, photos to accompany the article and i think both magazines made it into a two-part article and spread it out over two issues because like my, my article on day of the dead was so long but but while i was uh, you know when laurel productions that made it uh flew me up to pittsburgh for the filming uh they let it be known shortly before i left that they were going to invite me also to be a zombie in the movie so that's how i came to be in it, they thought all the reporters would write better articles if we could write it from the perspective of being a zombie and being directed by George Romero.
0: That's fantastic. So,
1: so once I got up there, I was in the company of reporters from Cine Fantastique, and um, they had uh, Kurt Loder from Rolling Stone, was probably the most prominent among us, and then Michael Musto from Us Magazine was there, and there was about a fifteen or so of us and uh yeah, they had us all be zombies so we could write the article about what it was like to be a zombie.
0: That's so great. You you're gonna have you're gonna have me and the rest of our listeners up at the screen with a magnifying glass trying to pick out you and Loder and everybody else.
1: Yeah I made it easy. I put my clip on YouTube for I think you just need to type in Donald Farmer Day of the Dead and I, I put my clip in slow motion and it's really easy to spot me.
0: That's <laughs> awesome. Like,
1: I think I'm about three rows back and a pack of zombies, so I, I slowed it down where you can spot me easier. But I'm the taller, tallest one in the group, so I stick out over everybody else's heads.
0: It's it's always nice to have like that one distinguishing feature when you're doing background work that just makes you pop out. And you're like, that's me.
1: Well, I was hoping to be a front row zombie, but it was not the case.
0: Well, <laughs> so, I think, if I remember they, in...
1: macro, yeah, They always put the short people in the front, so they, <laughs> they shut...
0: It's it's just, I guess it it just comes across as zombie etiquette. Um, I remember, I think in Land of the Dead, they had so many at one point that they were talking about how the, the back row zombies would get barely any touch up. Like they'd just get a little bit, of, here, you got red on your face, go. And then the front row zombies had all the applique and everything. And, and uh, was this, was it that way? Or was, I guess, Day of the Dead, It was there were a lot, there were many, but it was fewer in the grand scheme of his later stuff.
1: Yeah, what they basically did in Day of the Dead is they had Tom Savini there to do featured zombie makeups, and they had his assistants, who ended up becoming as famous as him. They had his assistant Greg Nicotero, who's now you know uh, in charge of makeup for Walking Dead and is also directing episodes. And so Greg Nicotero and Howard Berger, an Academy Award winner, uh, they were uh, Tom Savini's among Tom Savini's assistants. He had several assistants, but those were the two most famous, Howard Berger and Greg Nicotero, and there were there were two or three other assistants that were in charge of zombie makeup. So what they did was the people that were featured front row zombies got made up by Mr. Savini and then people that were second, third row, but still fairly visible like me. We were made up by either Greg or, or Greg Nicotero or Howard Berger. I was made up primarily by Howard Berger, but Howard only did my face and neck, and then they sent me through an assembly line for the touch-up. They had one person do my hands, one person do my hair, one person do my teeth, and then one person uh, does your wardrobe. And then when you're at the end of the line, there was somebody with ratty looking nasty clothes to put on you to finish you off. So I went through the whole zombie assembly line of all these people, For the complete look
0: (laughs) that's that's awesome i always whenever i think about those scenes i always wonder you know like where what prop closet has just a box of sticky bloody tattered zombie clothes you know
1: they had had, uh, racks of these zombie clothes when i arrived and they had them all neatly hung up you know in perfect order and so the wardrobe people you know had all these clothes at their disposal and then they would just size you up and and pick out a size that they thought would
0: approximately fit you. That's great. That's, that's, that's funny that, you know, you mentioned that because I think looking at your, especially your later body of work uh, up to now, I mean, I just, I just watched um, a hooker with a hacksaw again yesterday. Uh, and mm-hmm. how much of the the props do you, I mean, do you literally have just a garage full of props or do you do it on a film by film? You're like, all right, we need an arm here. What are we going to do?
1: Oh well, in that movie, I was fortunate enough to have a, a prop person who was also our art director and our effects guy. He did all three jobs. Um, his name's Mason Roberts, and he's sort of a prop and effects uh, wizard he's also His main job is that he's an antique restoration expert huh. and he's done he's done very elaborate jobs like uh, the city of Lexington hired him. To restore their gigantic hundred-year-old opera house, or he had to go into the building and restore all the uh, embellishments on the wall and all the furnishings. So he interested with a job that huge. But for us, when I he's worked on my last three movies and we'll be working on my new one. he does demons, and he uh, does uh, props. He does uh, primary makeup effects, and then he, we also give him an he does acting roles too. And uh, So if I need some kind of prop, he'll look through his shop, and if he doesn't have it, he'll make it. Like for our new movie, we needed some giant pinchers to pull out a girl's tongue, and he actually (laughs) had something like that already in his prop closet that we could use. And uh, we also needed um, a set that we could be very bloody in and get blood all over the floor and have it be in a place where it wouldn't be a problem. And so Mason found us this warehouse, that had concrete floors with drains in the floors, so oh. that you could make all the bloody mess you want, and then at the end of the day, you just get out a water hose and spray it all down the drain. And mm-hmm. he found this room first, and then he completely art-directed the place and put up, you know, all the props and settings and furniture in there. He found all of this, and so he's like a, you know, he does several jobs. He's like a miracle worker.
0: <laughs> that kind of touches on the one of the things I love about i mean your entire body of work really going back is you use people over and over and over again uh, oftentimes in different roles sometimes in front of the camera and behind the camera Uh, and i I can only imagine that that kind of um, relationship building really helps get the final product because i mean you know just being you know having having done pa work and some other you know bit parts and things like that so often on a set especially the bigger the set I feel like it's easy to get lost and sort of underappreciated like you just don't really feel like you're a part of the process and I can only imagine that with you working with the same people over and over again in different in different roles and different aspects kind of makes it kind of a community
1: yeah I try to do that whenever possible Uh, sometimes it we're too successful at it like in the 80s we've worked with many people that became so huge that I couldn't afford them anymore like uh, our makeup man, 30, uh, well, way back in 1987 when I made the original Cannibal Hookers, my primary makeup guy was Brian Scythe, and there's no way I could afford him now. Now he works for people. He does all of the X-Men movies. He did Schwarzenegger's makeup on the last Terminator film. He worked for David Fincher on the Niger- Benjamin Button movie with Brad Pitt. So he does all these wow. huge movies. He's really gone great. I mean, one of our... Uh, one of our actors, uh, Ray McKinnon from Vampire Cop, actually won an Academy Award for uh, for uh, Best Independent Short Film, and uh, he uh, was married to a famous scream queen who had been in uh, this uh, John Carpenter movie, Prince of Darkness, and so oh, yeah. he, uh, he and her produced the movie together, so they both got Oscars. Well, yeah, there's several people that have done our movies in the 80s that have either retired, like I did a whole string of movies in the 80s with Melissa Moore. Or we did Vampire Cup, Scream, Dream, and uh, Compelling Evidence with her until she finally retired from making movies. And I did a string of movies with Michelle Bauer, and she's pretty much semi-retired now. So I usually like to work with people until either they retire or until they get so famous that I can't afford them.
0: I I totally and you you mentioned um, uh, Melissa Moore and and Scream Dream is is my personal favorite I think of your films I I love that movie and I am dreaming now that you've you've done some things like you know a, a new interpretation of Cannibal Hookers and things like that I am dreaming of you doing uh, a new Scream Dream that would make me really happy. And th- that was a very
1: that was a very sort of ambitious movie to try to do on such a low budget because it required us to hire a uh, rock group that could come up with these songs for us and so we had all the added complication of having mm-hmm. to we had to book a recording studio in nashville and uh, record professional tracks of all their songs so that when they perform them in the movie they can be lip-syncing to their professional tracks because you can't really record live audio in right. that situation It it would sound very good. Um, So we had to book a nightclub that we could pretty much take over and have the full run of a nightclub and um, get audience members. And then we had to have a a full body head-to-foot demon makeup that Rick Gonzalez did for us. And Rick had also worked on um, zombie makeup under, he was also one of uh, Savini's assistants on Day of the Dead. So that's how I heard about him. And so Rick has done several movies for me. Uh, He did Demon Queen, and he did Vicious Kiss with Margot Hemingway. And So, you know, that was a very ambitious movie to try to do with no more money than we spent on it.
0: As a note, I I found an interview you said that Demon Queen really didn't have great distribution. And I can vouch for that because myself, having seen it from a video store way back when, trying to track down that movie for my own collection has been... Mind-blowingly difficult, and I'm I'm also waiting. Uh, I'm looking for Sub Rosa to do that one too.
1: Yeah, that was uh, distributed in America by a company called Mogul Communications, and they did, you know, really not much of a job putting it out. I had to drive all over uh, the area for checking all sorts of video stores. I think that when it first came out, I could only find it in one store within two hours of where I lived. Whereas with, with my next movie, Cannibal Hookers, that that seemed to be in about eight out of ten stores I checked. Because back then in the 80s, there were no video chains like Blockbuster Video or Hollywood Video or Family Video. Every video store back then was independently owned or family owned, and so there were these uh, industry magazines that would come out every month. They would have ads for all the new movies that they would recommend your store buy, and that's how family video stores uh, maintained their inventory and got new titles was by subscribing to these industry magazines and seeing what all the new movies were. And so with Cannibal Hookers, I was handled by a very ambitious uh, company that was very industrious, and they took out full-page ads in these trade magazines so that it made my movie appear to be bigger and more high-profile than it really was. And and so uh, just because they spent so much money on advertising and pushing the movie, it you know you know these stores thought well this isn't a big movie i better get it and so we ended up just pretty much the vast majority of the when it came out in 1988 it stocked it i even went to new york city and saw it all over video stores all over new york city so i was really very pleased with the distribution and then that and they were um, a canadian distributor and they were only supposed to be putting it out in canada but they ended up putting it out <laughs> all over so A few years later, we licensed, we actually licensed it to an American distribution company because we technically had not licensed it for America yet. And so then when the American company put it out, they did a good job, just like the Canadian company had, and they got it out all over the place all over again.
0: Well, and it's such a great name. I mean, Cannibal Hookers, it really does stand up there, you know, with, with a like a Herschel Gordon it when I when I first saw that, I was you know, I thought, um, Herschel Gordon Lewis, you know, Wizard of Gore, Bloodfeast, these really evocative names that somehow seem like you should have heard them before, but you haven't. And that's like and you just know instantly, like, oh, I'm gonna enjoy this.
1: Yeah, well the title is super important and uh, I always I like to have Concept titles whenever possible, mm-hmm. and a concept title is a title that tells you very clearly what the movie is going to have in it. Mm-hmm. So most of my movies have a concept title. Like uh, Scream Dream is not a concept title. That's sort of vague. Not as vague as a title like Scream, which is completely ambiguous because a movie called Scream can be anything. But when you have a huge budget, big stars like Drew Barrymore, you can get away with an ambiguous title. But when you're working on a really low budget, like I do it's helps to have a concept title like cannibal hookers or vampire cop or cannibal cop or hooker with a hacksaw titles that tell you exactly. Dorm of the dead. Yeah. You know, these, these titles make no mystery about what you're going to see when you go see my movie Chainsaw cheerleaders, you know exactly what'll be in it. So I try to steer stay away from vague, ambiguous titles whenever possible. Uh, I did one movie uh, 20 years ago for a producer who, wanted to have more control you know he put up about 100 grand for us to make it but he was very uh, you know bossy and he well he insisted on naming the movie himself even though i wrote the script he wrote a little outline for me to follow and then based on his outline i wrote the script and then but he insisted on tiling it because that was a big thing to him to be the one that came up with the title and so he called it deadly memories which i really hate that title because it's
0: important. body shop right it was is that your original title for it
1: He wanted to call it Body Shop because it was a movie about a killer killing people in an auto body shop. But he wanted to call it Deadly Memories, which doesn't really mean anything. It
0: means, I remember, so I I own that movie and I I love that movie. And I especially, I love Robert Zadar. uh, And and that was really exciting to see him work with you. And I want to ask about that. But I also remember buying it and being completely confused by the title when I went through the film. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, I begged him not to call it that. I I can't tell you how how many times I begged him. I I tried to explain to him why that was a bad title, why it would just leave the audience totally confused. But he insisted. He was like an egomaniac, and he insisted that he name the movie. And so, uh, you know, so it's unfortunate. I think with Body Shop, it would have had better distribution and would have done better. And then on top of that, he he gave it to a really terrible distribution company. uh, This uh, company I won't name, but they were a company. for... For a crappy distribution, and also notorious for never paying uh, royalties, and so you know oh, he got he got screwed doubly. First, screwed by his own rotten title, and second, he was screwed by his rotten distribution company.
0: Well, you know I,
1: he got, I uh... he gave a budget than a lot of my movies, you know, because he gave it a big budget with a hundred grand, and we had it was shot on film, um, and then he even had enough budget that he hired the WWEs pyrotechnics guy to do car explosions for us, and he hired a helicopter pilot to do uh, aerial photography. So we had a lot of expensive bells and whistles on that movie for it to uh, end up having such crappy distribution. I've done $2,000 movies that had better distribution than that one had.
0: One thing that I like about, especially, actually, almost all of your movies, um, I really love the cover art that gets Put on the distribution, especially your current ones. Um, and I was curious on how much control you had over that because on on Body Shop, Deadly Memories, um, the cover is a little. I really again with the title on the cover, I didn't know anything. It's it's a it's a welding mask, um, and so it could be any kind of movie. You know, it could be an episode of of NCIS. I really had no idea. It
1: Wasn't the worst one we've had. It was basically the face of a victim being killed reflected in the glass of a welding mask. And uh, the only notable thing about that is that the victim who is seen on the cover uh, is actually uh, Blake Mankowski, who's now famous as the founder of Tom Shoes, who's one of oh. America's biggest success story entrepreneurs. Right? A, a few years after we filmed with him, he went to L.A. and um, and uh, founded Tom Shoes, and now he's a huge success story. He's even done his own Mastercard commercial telling about his business, and he's. Been on lots of big TV talk shows like Chelsea lately. That is great.
0: uh, That is that is so crazy how things loop around.
1: Yeah, I hired him fresh off of the Amazing Race. He'd been on that TV show, The Amazing Race, and finished third. And I hired him. He was, you know, living in Nashville. But then it was right after we finished that he moved to LA and founded Tom Shoes, which I guess you can see at all the Whole Food stores. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's one of my two actors to found a. Prominent charity. The other one is uh, Mary Finero that was the star of uh, my first movie, uh, my first feature, *Demon Queen*. She founded this uh, charity um, called News, Omnip- Omnip- which yeah, which is, uh, her she's best friends with Courtney Cox. So she and Courtney founded this omni piece. So if you go to YouTube, there's all sorts of Omni-Peace videos they've got all over it telling all about her charity.
0: People always say it's great to have friends in, in high places, but it's also great to have friends who start in low places and then and then become high places.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that she doesn't brag to Courtney that she's in for you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I would. I would, but, you know, I, I understand I'm probably not the 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 norm on that one.
1: You got my movie and Tim Ritter's first movie, Back to Back, because she also is a small Tim's first movie, Truth or Dare. And uh, in that That's movie, right. he had two he had two future celebrities in that because he had one of those uh, boy band guys uh, um, in his movie, uh, well, either, I think from Backstreet Boys or one of those type of groups. I don't really keep up with them, but I know he had a famous boy band member in his movie that was uh, just a teenager when he filmed that thing.
0: It's nice to uh, be able to get people there like, oh, This'll be great when we re release it later. <laughs> you know, new title on the new uh new first name on the on the cover kind of deal.
1: Yeah, I'm surprised they haven't done that. I'm surprised they never have re released it, putting the boy band guy's name in huge letters like he's the star of it, because the movies have done that. You know, uh, yeah, Devil's I Rain. would.
0: If it were the my Devil's film King, I was King. distributing.
1: Yeah, they re released The Devil's Rain and made you think John Travolta was the star and he really had a Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, I've and I've fallen victim to that many times. You know, like wow, so and so. Oh yeah, um, they're 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 in the background. You know, they sell the ice cream cone. In the late '90s, early 2000s, you did kind of a string of uh, of work for producers. Uh, you did a, some some action flicks in there, right? I think you did Demolition Highway, right?
1: Yeah, I did a whole string of uh, more expensive movies that were shot on film. But I was working for the string of producers that flatly refused to let me do a horror movie during that period. So it wasn't my choice to do these action movies. Mm -hmm. I would rather do horror movies if I have a choice, but first I worked with this one producer that I did four movies in a row with him. And he basically put up a slightly over $1 million budget for the four movies. So we had a quarter million dollars about per film. And the only catch was that he, well, there were two catches. Uh, because they all had to be either action movies or uh, murder mystery kind of thrillers, mm-hmm. and then the catch was he had to be the male lead in all of them. <laughs> so,
0: is this uh, am I am I going out on a limb here? Is this is this Danny Fenley or? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I did these
1: movies for him. The first one he had already
0: started
1: pre-production when I got involved, and so I was hired onto that movie to work on the crew, and then. Before that movie was finished, they ended up uh, junking the last 15 minutes that the director had shot, and then they promoted me to co-director and had me redo the final 15 minutes.
0: Was that Deadly Run?
1: Yeah, so I got a co-directing credit on that because the director's uh, final 15 minutes was totally unusable. A lot of it was because his hand director of photography uh, about ruling the last part of the movie he also ruined another scene that they ended up keeping but he because danny had done something really extravagant for making a low budget local movie he had hired his, he had hired a director from scotland instead of hiring somebody local that when, when anytime you hire somebody out of town to work on your movie right away you've got to put them in a hotel which is going to raise your budget mm-hmm. and you give them three meals a day which is going to raise your budget so it always makes sense if you're hiring crew to hire local people that live where you're shooting, so you don't have to be putting them in motels and giving them all these meals. But uh, not only did Danny hire this uh, director that he had to fly all the way over from Scotland for some bizarre reason, that the director then talked him into hiring all his friends from the crew, which meant he he ended up flying like 15 people from Scotland over, because this movie had like a 30-person crew, and at least half the crew were from Scotland, so I never saw such a bizarre way it was just, you know, bizarre. Why would you waste them? That movie ended up costing the most of the four movies I did for him and it didn't even have any celebrities in it. It cost the most because there was all this huge waste going think, on by firing be, all these Scottish people f- flying them over here. And then the be, Scottish DP director personally recommended, ended up not even knowing what he was doing, and he ruined several scenes of the movie by underexposing them and shooting them yeah. too dark. The uh, scenes have were you so ever, dark
0: have you ever had that happen because I've seen so many projects where I've been in the room and I shouldn't say so many but in several projects I've been in the room I've watched them like that was great and then you know the dailies or, or the shots come out later and they're like this we can't use this and you just want you just are so frustrated You're like what was the dp thinking like what Part,
1: happened uh, One of the advantages from the days when people shot on film you you couldn't see your footage till you got your uh mm-hmm. stuff lab and could look at your rushes and so maybe by the time you see that something has been exposed incorrectly it's too late to redo it so that's why it's a big advantage nowadays shooting digital where you can see what you shot immediately and if right. there's a problem you shot you can correct it immediately while you still have your actors there and not have to moan about it a few days later because you know usually it's these movies we were doing in um with danny finley we were lucky to be able to see our footage two days later and by then it was too late
0: mm. That's I will say. You said there were no celebrities. I think most of us would agree with that. But I will say I was kind of interested to hear your experience with Joe Estevez. Was that like a one day shoot? Because I think he played the bad guy in that, right? In Demolition
1: Highway. Um, we had him with us for uh, like pretty much five days. We had Joe with us for a for the better part of a week, and it was a great experience because Joe was a really super great guy, and we all loved working with him. And he was super accommodating, and he didn't have any star ego. You know, he was. Um, you know willing to you know get down there and do what it took to get the movie shot and um, he was a uh, nails everything on the first take and as a total professional so yeah you couldn't ask for a better actor than joe
0: that's that's great because i remember i i one of my favorite 90s flicks that i saw at the time like on, you know, in when it came out was uh, Soul Taker, and to see Joe Estevez and Robert Zadar and then come back and see them in your films with uh, Demolition Highway, and then and then later with a uh, 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 Body Shop. It was it was nice. I was kind of getting like, oh, like I feel like it's a one little family. Um,
1: yeah, I'm happy for Joe, especially now that he's probably more popular now than he's ever been since he has that hit show on Adult Swim. Um, called Decker where he co-stars with Tim Heidecker from uh, yep. the Tim and Eric, you and so now that he's got this adult swim show, I'd, I'd say Joe probably has more fans than he's ever had in his life.
0: And it's funny because I always felt like Joe was one of those guys that, you know, a lot like you and a lot of the people you cast and work with, you know, they their, their work is loved and it's appreciated, but they just don't seem to break through that next level where there's like a broad understanding of who they are, you know? Like oh, yeah, Joe!
1: The, was, you know when you close your eyes, Joe's voice sounds exactly like his brother's voice. And Joe was telling me that uh, you know everybody knows this. Uh, Brother is uh, Joe. On the other hand, will do any you know will do whatever job you know will pay the rent. And so he was telling me that he's constantly being offered radio ads where they just want his voice right. for conservative causes. So he'll do these ads for these conservative interests and it just drives his brother Martin Sheen crazy because then everybody thinks Martin Sheen has switched and is now a Republican. And so he says he'll get these screaming phone calls from his brother cussing him out for doing these conservative ads. He says, you got to stop doing that. People think it's me. <laughs>
0: that is hilarious. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I want to I wanna make sure we get in a time to talk and I, and I want to know too. Um, so your next movie, uh, Debbie Does Demons, you've been i want to say you've been a little tight-lipped about what's actually in this movie
1: yeah i just put a synopsis of it on um i a couple of days ago so if anybody wants to read the plot synopsis i i put a little quick synopsis on there for people that want to know what it's about
0: that's but it's, awesome you know,
1: basically, it's basically a horror comedy uh that's uh, about a girl that has to deal with him and
0: i was gonna say it, it's it sounds like a sexy horror horror comedy
1: Well, that's all of my movies have that. So a little sexiness and a little horror mixed together. But this one is, uh, I'm just trying to refine it a little more with this one. And so with this one, one thing I'm doing a little different is uh, a few years ago, I directed a play that we put on in Nashville, uh, which was a really good experience. And we... um, So when you're doing a play, obviously, the actors have to have all the lines memorized where they can run through it uh, from beginning to end with no breaks. They don't have, without having to constantly check their scripts. So we did this play based on a play by the Marquis de Sade called Philosophy in the Bedroom. And then after we uh, did the play and the play had ended, I wanted to film it to have it for posterity. So I uh, got the actors all together and we were able to film an entire movie of their performance in like one afternoon, even though it was an hour, 15 minute play, since everybody knew their lines, we were able to shoot the thing in about six or so hours and shoot the final product. It would be about an hour, 15. And uh, uh, about 30 minutes of this movie I made is going to be an extra feature on the Hooker with a Hacksaw DVD that's coming out in a couple of months. But anyway, that way of working where where you're working um, where actors have to treat it like a play and not like a movie. I wanted to bring a little bit of that to W. Dust demons. So I wrote the script where it would work as both a movie and a play. Mm-hmm. Where uh, if you took away some of the fight scenes and some of the effects, it would be something you could actually perform on a stage. So I've got I've, I've written it where if I ever in the future wanted to put it on as a play, uh, I would be able to with only slight changes to the script. And uh, because it's so dialogue-heavy, I'm gonna have to insist that the actors do a better job of trying to learn as many of their lines before we come to the shooting day as possible, so that we don't have to stop and wait around while people study their lines. Because when you have know the full script from top to bottom, that's a big advantage. Then you can just burn through the shooting. Whereas when you have actors that don't know their lines and they have to be studying their lines before the shot, you can be have a lot of downtime, just sitting around twiddling your thumb while you're waiting for somebody to learn their
0: lines. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's a big thing that that a lot of people still don't know is it's it's not a stage play. You know, a lot of a lot of actors, especially, I mean, some of the biggest names, they don't read the script, and you get there, and uh well, there. What's the line? Okay, they do the line. So,
1: so yeah. But if, if I ever did want to do Debbie, I think Debbie Does Demons would work really good as a play. But so I might, you know, who knows? In a year or two, I might want to put it on as a play. At, one of these theaters around here, uh, because I think it would draw a good crowd with a title like that, and uh, so I've got re- sure. I've got it written. I've got it written where I, if I needed to do it, you know, because a lot of my movies, there's no way I could do them with a pl- as a play with the right. script as the script gives, because the script may have too many locations. Um, but uh, the Debbie does demon scripts. I think it actually would work as a play, and so I tried to write it that way on purpose.
0: That's really interesting, and I'd love to see that. Uh, and you said the uh, 30 minutes of the uh, the play that you shot is going to be on the Hooker with a Hacksaw physical copy that's coming out?
1: That's right. It's going to be the main special feature along with audio content for uh, the star of the movie. So uh, that'll be something that's, I uh, know I just talked to the distributor and they are getting ready to do the DVD replication and they've got the cover uh, layout almost finished. So they're in the final stage just now of getting the DVD ready and they Hopefully it'll be out over in September or
0: so. Cool. Well, and that's, and, and just, just to kind of give, give fans, that's uh, Hooker with a Hacksaw starring Casper Meltedair, correct? <laughs> mm-hmm. And she's, and she's going to be in this new one, Debbie Does Demons.
1: Yeah, she's, uh, she's going to be in this one. This will be her fourth movie with me because she first had a co-star enrolled role in Cannibal Cop. And then she was the star of uh, Hooker with a Hacksaw. And then she was part of an ensemble cast on Cannibal Hookers and, Now she'll be in this one too. So this will be our fourth movie together.
0: That's great. And I mean, she she also co-wrote Hooker with a Hacksaw, right?
1: Yeah, she wrote a lot of her own dialogue. She had a lot of, uh, and then she came up with ideas for scenes. So she contributed ideas for scenes. And so I tried to, she had some good ideas. So I tried to use her input whenever
0: possible. That's awesome. I, I think as someone who works behind the scenes and in front of the camera, having a director and producer who are willing to take, your ideas, especially when you're kind of in the thick of it, and it feels like I know what's going to work here, uh, that's always a nice thing.
1: So uh, it was good with makeup, and she's helped us with makeup too. She did; she was also a makeup uh, help Mason with makeup on Hooker with a Hexa too.
0: Well, and there's a uh, I, I love the uh, the intestine orgy scene it was a pretty fantastic scene. That was that was my personal standout.
1: Yeah, but, yeah Mason handmade those intestines. Those are he made those from scratch.
0: I was trying to figure it out because, you know, so often that you look and I'm like, is that sausage? Is it like, what am I looking at? And I was like, no, that looks like it was made for this purpose. So that's, <laughs> that's definitely an yeah, interesting he to,
1: one. He told me his main ingredient was women's hose. But yeah, he's a really good at building. You just tell him to build something and he could build it. I know for uh, Hook with a hacksaw, I also needed a severed leg that would spray blood at several points, and he made that for us. And yeah, I was going
0: to say the blood spray in Hook with a Hacksaw was, uh, was effective. I definitely, it was very noticeable, and Casper um, was not afraid to, to let everything get dirty, which is always what you want in front of the camera.
1: Yeah, we were in that big room with a drain on the floor, so at the end of the day, we just got out the hose, and Mason was able to wash everything down.
0: <laughs> that's great um so uh i want to wrap it up so you can work on all this are you, are you actually working a lot right now i don't know what the lockdown or, or the you know the miss rona end of the world situation that we're facing right now i know here in in palm springs everything's still pretty tight because we're we're having a hard time with it is it has it hurt anything on your end
1: no not really everything's pretty much the same as always for me it hasn't really uh caused me to you know uh I have so, a regular so, yeah. job, I haven't uh, lost any days on my regular job, and uh, and I'm just still preparing for this project. The only thing we're going to do differently when we're shooting the new movie is, so this will be the first movie I've shot since the uh, coronavirus, and so we'll be um, trying to have the bare minimum number of people on the set. We'll probably be wearing masks when we're not filming, and um, we're, you know, encourage people to wear masks, and for maybe sure. it'd be a good idea if we can get one of those um, laser temperature things, you know, to take everybody's yep. temperature.
0: You know, it's it's one of those things that you get a lot of people, especially, and I understand it. You know, we have a lot of small businesses out our way, and and they're suffering. But at the same time. I have family on the east coast where people are are telling them that oh it's nothing you know like this isn't real and then out here I'm like we see people we know people who who've, who've passed away it's no joke so I always try and urge and our listeners you know make sure stay safe stay safe for yourself for other people and uh and thank God you're still making the movie because uh, movies are drying up and I'm waiting <laughs> I'm waiting for some new stuff, and I want to mention too that you're you've got Debbie Does Demons on Indiegogo right now. I think for another couple of weeks till July 8th. That's right, huh? And so, uh, and people can can go in. You can donate. You can actually get a producer credit, uh, which uh, I'm very proud. Colton Classic Podcast put ours in, so that's that's exciting. I'm looking forward to the DVD when that eventually rolls out.
1: They can get a producer credit, or they can get the Blu-ray, or they can get a poster, or. Um... Oh, those are just some of the perks they can get if they go to the w does demons indiegogo page
0: and uh, and the posters are fantastic the artwork you've got for this is is top i love it it's top notch
1: yeah. well that's just our teaser poster and then when we once we start shooting we'll make another poster that'll show the actual that's actors nice. that are in the. Yeah. yeah that's just a teaser poster and then once we get going we'll we'll make several more posters so I, that's one thing i like to do lately is i like to make more than one poster for a movie and for Accountable Hookers, we had two really world-class artists that each made us a great poster. We had Graham Humphreys from England, who is the number one cover artist for Arrow Video. He does a, about half of all the Arrow Video covers, and he did one great cover poster for us. And then we had uh, an Italian artist, uh, Gian Paolo Fritzi, who did another poster for us. So, uh, so we'll probably be reaching out to some of our artist friends to do a poster once we have some stuff shot where they can use reference photos of our actors uh, to uh, use mm-hmm. the base of them. So
0: That's... you say
1: you're in Palm Springs, California? Yep. Oh, I'm amazed. No, has anyone ever tried to make an indie movie in Palm Springs using that outer space-looking Love Hope mansion as a background? Because I know his... <laughs> house in Palm Springs it looks like something out of a sci-fi movie. It,
0: it does and I have to say I, I uh, spoiler for those of us we haven't we have not seen it. but I'm personally working on a small little uh, 50s style sci-fi project because the desert landscape out here I mean I, I can't tell you I walk out my back door and it's like I'm in Robinson Crusoe on Mars you know what I mean it's just it's a it's a crazy thing. And then you have this, this really interesting, you know, uh, mid-century modern art deco funkiness all over the place. You know, the statues, you know, the uh, signage, everything. So it's just, it's a totally kind of an otherworldly experience. My wife and I love it out here. And, and I haven't seen a lot done out here. Um, they, you know, they did a lot of Westerns back in the day, but it's mm-hmm. also...
1: Mm-hmm. looking houses in Palm Springs or as
0: Bob well, Hope's the only one? Nope. There are a lot of weird ones there are a lot this, I
1: see these photos of it, and it looked like that could be the perfect set for a sci-fi movie it looks like a house from the future
0: it's it's absolutely actually i'm pretty close to it and i and i gotta tell you if you ever want to scout locations drop me a line we got room the
1: biography of bob hope and it turns out that he didn't even want to move to palm springs and live in that house he was perfectly happy with his house in la and it was his wife that insisted that they buy it they said he'd never liked that Palm Springs house, but he just went along with it because his wife bullied him into it.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked. I wouldn't be shocked. They've got the main thoroughfare through, through pretty much all the side-by-side towns out here is Bob Hope. And so every day uh, you take that and you just kind of I just think of my favorite what? bits of his. How far are you from Coachella? Um, I think, let's see, probably about an hour, if that. Um, everything's pretty close together out here. The the only thing I'll say about the downside out here, especially when you're talking about shooting, I mean, it is otherworldly hot uh, when you get in during the day. I mean, today is a cool day and it's 106.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been to Palm Springs once in the 80s. And and so I, I drove from LA to Palm Springs where I took uh, Interstate 10. So I drove by that dinosaur park that yep. is used in movies like Pee Wee's.
0: Bigger Yep, I, I, we, I, my wife and I take photos there quite a bit. Interesting fact on that: there, uh, a, it was actually purchased somewhat recently by a creationist museum, and they built a dinosaur play area next to it for kids, which is a, a very clandestine, uh, funky way to teach children that dinosaurs aren't real. Very strange place. Well,
1: as long as they don't tear down the original statues exactly. that are. museum. I mean, I first saw them in that movie, Revenge of the Cheerleaders, and then I saw them in Julie's Big Adventure. But I know they're still there. A friend of mine was there last year, and she showed me a lot of photos she took where she was able to crawl inside one of the dinosaurs' mouths, and you could take a photo of yourself yep. in their mouth.
0: Yep, yep. You have to pay to do it now, but it's still worth it. And they actually, some people were complaining, but they actually repainted them, I and they it. they did a decent job. It looks more like they did back in the day. So... I'll give them credit for that. And it's always a fun place to go. And there's always a, there's this, it's in a sort of, it's in an empty off the highway, nothing around it, desolated lot. So you just get these fantastic photos of these giant dinosaurs with you in front of it and just, just hills and desert.
1: Well, the way I remember it is you can see it pretty clearly from Interstate 10, even if you don't get off the interstate, you can
0: still see it. Yep. Yep. It's right there. And then the other side's got nothing. So it's, it's worth it. It's worth at the very least a drive by if anybody is ever out here.
1: Oh yeah. yeah. Well, if I ever get out there again, it's always something fun to go look at.
0: For sure. And I, I want to give a shout out too. I was noticing again, and this isn't just in Hooker with a Hacksaw, but it's just freshest in my mind. You do a really cool job of showing a lot of different oddities around uh, where you're filming, especially in Tennessee. I know Hooker with a Hacksaw. You you have um, Casper sort of lounging or licking and doing all these weird things with, um, a ton of different like statues and one of them it looks to me like maybe a drag queen cow with a with a frying pan
1: you know that was a tourist stop off the interstate in Kentucky uh which is about 20 miles north of uh John Carpenter's hometown of Bowling Green Kentucky so uh and it was every a lot of the things that we had Casper interacting with are no longer there probably pretty much the only thing that she interacts with in that scene that is still there is the uh, giant dinosaur where she sort of is rubbing up and down on the horns. But the uh, all the other statues, like the, st- the statue of the animal kind of woman with boobs, that's no longer there. And pretty much all the other statues, last time I was there, they were all gone. Uh, so it's sort of sad that the dinosaur is the only thing still there.
0: <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being with us, Donald Farmer, everyone. This is the master horror filmmaker that Joe Bob Briggs called exploitation Cheapie meister Donald Farmer, the one-man film industry of Tennessee. Thank you so much for being here. And as a parting gift, we will be sending you a test print of our brand new Colton Classic podcast trading cards, which if you guys want one, we will be sending out one trading card autographed by the artist, which is yours truly. Uh, every month for our Patreon, our brand new patreon.com slash Colton classic podcast. Definitely check it out. There's also a $10 tier a month where you get a zine that is custom made every month in addition to the trading card. And of course, you can always just donate whatever you can spare a dollar or anything gets you access to video recordings of all of our regular panel discussion podcasts. Thank you guys so much. As always, here to play us out is the chud.